You are listening to a message recorded at Living Hope Church in Southwick, Massachusetts. We hope you find encouragement through God's Word today. We've been in the book of Colossians the last few weeks. As we mentioned before, uh, the Apostle Paul is in prison in Rome. He is in his own house under house arrest. And he can't really go anywhere, but he can write and he can receive visitors, encourage people. And during his time in these two years, he writes a series of letters called the Prison Epistles or Prison Letters. And so one of them is Colossians, and we're looking at the book of Colossians together, and it's a uh, short book, about four chapters long, but it is full of information. It packs a lot in a very short space. And so this is part three in my series on uh, a church in crisis. And uh, so there are a series of crises in the church of Colossae. And so uh, the first one is this, false teaching. False teaching. Legalism, the worship of angels, the pursuit of secret knowledge that only certain false apostles had were infiltrating the church. One major one was that they were denying that Jesus indeed was God. In fact, they said, well, Jesus really isn't God. He's just one of the emanations of God, one of his manifestations, but he is not God himself. But there was another crisis occurring in Colossae, and it was a crisis of character. Now, I'll give you a little background on this. These false apostles were known as Gnostics. And one of their teachings was that all physical matter is evil, but that spirit is good. Now, again, we talked about this last week, that there are times where something sounds good. But when you uh, expect it a little more closely, you recognize it's actually not good, and it doesn't have its origins in anything good. So it says, all matter is evil, but the spirit is good. Said, oh, that sounds convincing to me. But... He said, you could do whatever you wanted in the body on earth, and it wouldn't really matter because your spirit will go to heaven. So you could sin, you could behave however you wanted to, you could be the worst kind of person imaginable, and they said, that's quite all right because it doesn't matter because in the end, your spirit will go to heaven. And according to this teaching, people could live however they wanted and God would be okay with it. Now, I think we see that today in the world that we live in, in some churches even. Whatever you want to do is fine. Live by your truth, and God will understand. But as you can imagine, this created a big problem in the church, creating corruption and confusion. People would just do whatever they wanted, and they would get into things they shouldn't get into, and it, that influence would corrupt others in the church, new Christians coming to faith, thinking that they can just behave however they wanted to. And it created confusion because people are like, I thought we were supposed to, you know, follow God and, and follow his word and live right. And then there were people like, no, no, that's, that's not necessary. You don't need to do that. So it created confusion as well. Because believers were not living as good examples to others. And it was creating confusion among new Christians about how they were supposed to act. Now, let's take a look at Colossians 3 together. Now, if you're new to our church, you'll notice we do things a little differently here. And if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We have the Bible on the uh, screen behind me, and we'll go through it together. But if you're in need of a Bible, we can provide you with one at no charge. We'd be happy to put that in your hands. But let's take a look at it together. If you'll, you can just follow along with me on the, 
uh, verses on the screen behind me. In Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, it says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God, and set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth, for you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So let's pause for a moment and think about what Paul is saying, and let's pray that God will grant us understanding today. Amen? So God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for truth. May it penetrate our hearts. May your spirit bring conviction, and may we receive what you're trying to tell us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul reminds them that when they accepted Jesus, that they died to their sins and began a new life in Christ. From that moment forward, their life is now hidden with Christ in God. Now, the word hidden means that they are protected. They are covered. So if you want to keep something safe, you may hide that thing so it doesn't get hurt. If you have a little kitten and you're going out in the rain, you'll put the little coat over the kitten to protect the kitten from getting wet. If you have things that are, uh, like for instance, this iPad, this iPad is incredibly fragile. That's the way they make them so that you will break them. So, and if you don't have the protection plan, you're going to be shelling out some serious money to replace that screen. So what do you do? You put a little cover over it to protect it, and it's kept safe. It's hidden. And so what Paul is saying is that when you accepted Christ, your life is hidden with Christ in God in heavenly places, and so your, your, your place is in eternity, and it's secure with him. So you're saying, well, Pastor Dan, does that mean that I can just do how, whatever I want? That I can live however I want? No. In fact, it's quite the opposite. We have a responsibility to what we've been given in Christ. So with this in mind, Paul says the first thing that we need to keep our uh, mind focused on is our concentration. Now, we live in an ADD society today. We have people that are very hyperactive, people that sometimes can't focus on one thing or the other. In fact, you might be sitting here, and we're already an hour into service, and you're like, I'm already checked out, okay? Or even as a person reads, you might say, okay, I can't focus on these things. Concentration is something that's sorely lacking in the world that we're living in today. But Paul is saying, okay, I want you to focus on something today. When we're dealing with a crisis of character, I want you to focus on these things that will help you change and improve your character. Paul says that we are seated in heavenly places, so we shouldn't be focused on earthly desires and earthly things, but rather on things above. Paul is encouraging to put their mind where their spirit is. Putting their mind where their spirit is. Part of the problem can be our focus. Where do we have our eyes? What are we looking at? What are we looking to for direction, for inspiration, for guidance? How do we look and do we seek after things above? Now, what does it mean to seek after things above and setting our mind on things above? It literally means to habitually set your mind and your attention on things of heaven and not things of earth. It means that you have your feet on earth, but your thoughts, your affections, your love, and your desire is for God and the things above. Now, this doesn't mean that, you know, you're so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good. In other words, you still have to go to work. 
You still have to go to school. You still have to take care of your family. You still have to be good to your husband or wife. There's still things that you need to do in this world. You can't just sit around and pray all day and read the Word all day. You have to live life. So we can have our minds set on heavenly things, but have our feet walking this earth and being involved in the things of this world. What does it mean? It means that we think of everything, every decision we need to make in relation to our relationship with Christ and that we look at everything from a heavenly point of view. I'll give you an example. The difference between having your mind set on earthly things and your mind set on heavenly things. For example, a person that uh, wants to be successful and acquire wealth, a person of this world wants it so they can get more things, have more stuff, to have a bigger bank account, a bigger house, more things than their neighbor, more things than the other person. You know, the top four wealthiest people in the world are constantly jockeying for position to see who can be the wealthiest, whether it's Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates uh, or, you know, uh, these different people. They try and kind of go up over each other, and when they go from uh, third to second, it's a big deal for them because I have more money than the other person. But the Christian has his mind on being successful, but his desire for success is not so that he can acquire things for himself, but rather to do good for God's kingdom. And there are many wonderful entrepreneurs that are out there that are helping places like Clearway Clinic and Nehemiah House and other ministries like the Springfield Rescue Mission that are helping people help other people. So the focus of the Christian is not on acquiring wealth and success for themselves, but for the kingdom of God and doing good. Ephesians 2.6, it says, We were saved and seated with Christ in heavenly places. So if heaven, if our home is in heaven, our thoughts and actions should reflect a heavenly perspective. This new concentration is instead of focusing on the sinful things of this world, we focus on living for Jesus. Now, we need to count ourselves dead to sin. That's one of the first things that Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If you have died to sin, if you have died with Christ, so we are dead to sin. What does that mean? Well, Romans chapter 6, verses 8 through 13 talk about this. And I want you to look at this together because Paul really spells it out. You know, if there's ever a passage of Scripture you're reading, and you're like, I don't understand, like, what he means by that. I almost guarantee you that there's another part of the New Testament where he explains it a little more in depth. And so he does that in Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. He says, Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has any dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves, it sounds like a southerner, right? Reckon yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts and desires. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourself to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So he points out the Christian has died to sin when he accepted Christ as Savior and the life he lives, he should live now for God. And it reminds them not to use their, their life and their, their uh, 
talents and their abilities and their members to, as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourself as an instrument to be used for God's glory. This is about choosing to be used by God for what is good and holy and not choose to live for yourself in selfishness and sin. If you've got your concentration, your mindset on things above, you won't be concerned about the things of this world that cause us to sin because our focus is now pleasing God. When you've come to Christ, you should change your perspective. My pursuit is no longer pleasing myself. My pursuit is to please God and to do right by Him. Let's head back to Colossians 3 again. The next part has to do with now that we have this new life in Christ, what do we do? Well, the second thing has to do with our character. And there's two things he tells us to do. He tells us to put off the old man, our old way of living, the person that we used to be before we became a Christian, and to put on the new man, which is the image and the likeness and the example of Jesus. If we're to be following Jesus, and the word Christian means follower of Christ, then that means by example we need to follow his example and try and live by it. So Paul is talking about clothes as an illustration of character. If you physically died and were made alive again, you wouldn't wear the same things or stay in the same place. I'll give you an example. If you went to the hospital for any kind of treatment, which Lord knows you love the hospital, right? Nothing better than going to the hospital and being vulnerable and being in a, in a gown that they've got on backwards and they tie you on backwards and maybe you're wearing your shorts underneath, maybe you're not. So it's an embarrassing, humiliating kind of place to be. And that's like saying, okay, you're better now or that you came out of a coma, you were in a coma and you were out for however many days or months and then all of a sudden you were revived again, the doctors were able to get you awake and alert again and they check you out and you walk out in your gown. That you walk out in that little Johnny that you had when you were staying in, in the hospital. And you say, you know, I like this. I'm going to wear this. You know, this was a good experience. I like something that reminds me about that experience. So I'm just going to walk around in this. No, you would say, I'm better now. So because I'm better, I'm going to change into the clothes that look like me. And I'm going to go about my life. And I don't want anything that looks like my time or my ordeal in the hospital. Right? Now think about Lazarus. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11 in the New Testament. And when he comes out, he's fully alive, fully regenerated, fully made whole. But he's still in grave clothes. And, he tells, and Jesus tells his family, he says, loose him, untie him, un cut him loose from those grave clothes and let him go. Why? Because they're dirty. They smell, they have the smell of death and decay on them. And so they need to be removed. He was to come out of there. He was to be washed. He was to put on new clothes and to live life. But can you imagine Lazarus going, you know what? I want a souvenir. I want a memory of what Jesus did for me. So I'm going to go around in these grave clothes all the time. Meanwhile, people are holding their nose. They're avoiding him. And so it's this picture of death. And so I want you to get the idea here is that Paul's saying, listen, you were brought alive in Christ. You, are, you were dead in sin. In fact, maybe some members of your family wrote you off and said there's no good in him or her. She's an addict. She's a, he's a mess up. Never, nothing good is ever going to come of them. 
And so you got written off that way, but then Christ came into your life and changed you entirely. You're not defined by what you used to be. You're now defined by who you are in Jesus. You have a new purpose, a new concentration, and God is bringing about a new character in you. So you have to change with the change that's taking place inside. So what does he tell them to do? Two things. To put to death the earthly nature and to put on uh, the heavenly nature, to put, on, put off the old man and to put on the new. He tells them to put to death the old man and to put off these things. There's two very distinct things here. One is that needs to die and the other is you need to avoid this. So keep that in mind as we read the next few verses in Colossians 3. Beginning in verse 5, Therefore put to death your members which are of earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, and evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves put off these things. Notice the difference. One is put to death. The other is to put off. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man and its deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in the knowledge according to the image of him who created him where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is, is in all and through all. Now, I want you to understand something today. We're going through Colossians 3, and there's a lot in there. You can focus on the peace of God. You can focus on setting your mind on heavenly things. You can focus on the relationship between husband and wife. You can focus on uh, issues that have to do with slavery, but we're not focusing on all those. We're trying to squeeze into this little bit of time that we have together uh, a certain teaching, and that's about character today. So he says, put to death. This literally means to, to, to mortify, to put these things to death now, things that used to be part of your life that are not to be part of it any longer. He says, put to death these things because they're not just dangerous, they're deadly to your salvation. He says, because of these things, God's judgment and wrath is coming upon those who are disobedient and those who are far from God. You say, well, that's really tough, and this might be your first time in church, and I promise you, I don't usually talk about judgment and wrath and all those things. That's not the way I roll. But we have to understand sometimes, like, okay, well, well, why is it God's judgment? Why does he have to punish? Why does he have to have wrath? Well, do you parent children? Do you have kids of your own? Well, what, kind of, what kind of children would you have if you just let them do whatever they wanted to do whenever they wanted to do it? You would have spoiled, rotten, self-centered, self-absorbed children. Maybe you do. I don't know. <laughs> but they would think the world revolves around them and that everything is about them and that they are to be the object of worship. So what do you do? As a parent, reluctantly, you discipline and discipline is unpleasant. It's unpleasant for the one... Listen, I'll tell you as a parent, I don't like to discipline you. I don't like to yell at my kids. I don't like to punish them. I get no joy and no satisfaction from it. So God doesn't take any joy or satisfaction. In fact, the scriptures say that I, I do not delight in the death of the wicked. So just understand that right there. God's not just waiting to smack you over the head and throw you into hell. That's not what he's about. 
But he is about discipline because he knows he created you for better. He created you for his glory. He created you to be a little lower than the angels and to be crowned with glory and honor. That's what he created you for. But you can't achieve that as long as you are still living life by your own standards, living life by your own set of rules. God has a playbook and an instruction book for your life that if you do it, you'll be blessed. And so there's two parts of this, that when we come to Christ, we receive forgiveness, we receive salvation. Our part, God's part is saving us, forgiving us. Uh, God's part is to save us, forgive us, and cleanse us from our sins. Our part is to live for him. And you might say, well, okay, well, that sounds real restrictive, Pastor Dan. Let me ask you, okay, let me put it to you this way. Are you in a relationship with somebody? Do you have a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a husband, and wife? You can say you love someone until you're blue in the face. But if you're cheating on them constantly, they're not going to feel loved. If you make promises that you don't keep, they don't feel love. In fact, it will actually fracture and break and ruin the relationship. And it doesn't matter how many times you tell them that you love them. If your love is not followed up with actions and devotion and faithfulness and loyalty and trust, then that will break and dissolve in a matter of moments. So we need to understand that now that we've been brought into this new life in Christ, this new relationship with him, we are to follow after him and walk with him. Just as we read early in Romans 6, consider yourself dead to sin. Another way to say this is if you have chosen not to participate in those things you used to do anymore. It's kind of like removing the roots and causes for death. So when cancer, when it's treated, the growth or the cyst is removed and the cells are treated with chemotherapy and so that nothing is cancerous remains, it's been removed. And it's like gardening. So if you're in gardening, you're pulling up weeds, which you know I just weeded two weeks ago and they're all back after that rain that we had or those creeping vines. And if you just trim the creeping vines, they're just gonna grow back worse. So what do you have to do? You have to get down towards the root, grab it, pull it out. And sometimes those things go deep so that it doesn't grow and happen again. Paul writes the list of grievous offenses that the Christian should not just avoid, okay? There's a list to avoid, but there's a list to put to death, and they are as follows. Okay, so he lists them off. And some of these are old, you know, some of these are are King James words, so you're like, well, that doesn't apply to me, so, you know, I don't do fornication, I don't know what fornication is. But he break it down in its modern terms. So fornication, for example, comes from the Greek word porneia, which is where we get pornography, okay? It's, it's a word that uh, describes the desire for the opposite sex in a sexual way. This almost always refers to sexual activity outside of marriage or the engagement in, in viewing and hearing and partaking of things that are sensual in nature. God created his plan for humanity that sexuality was reserved for both pleasure and reproduction in the confines of marriage. I know you're probably saying to yourself, Pastor Dan doesn't normally preach like this, and you might be even slightly uncomfortable to hear these words come out of my mouth. But understand, if we don't talk about these things, then people just assume that certain things are okay. What God created the sec- human sexuality for is that it was to be enjoyed between a husband and wife. 
Hebrews 13.4 says that marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. They're saying, well, pastor, that's kind of unfair. Don't you know you got to kind of, can't we just kind of like ease into like a relationship and then maybe we'll think about marriage and that's actually something that you don't actually see in the scriptures at all. It always was, let's commit ourselves to each other and then explore that part of it. And so whether we are looking at things we shouldn't look at or whether we're engaging in sexual activity outside of marriage, it is spoken against here. Another thing is uncleanness. A perversion is when something gets twisted around. In Paul's letters to the Corinthian church, he said that all other sins that a man commits are outside his body, but sexual sin is a sin against your own body. So he's saying, like, these things, like, you know, uncleanness and perversion, the twisting of things, when we have something that God created and man takes it and twists and makes it something else or makes it dark or makes it twisted, that's when it's no longer beautiful anymore. It becomes something entirely different. Passions. Well, like, well, passion's good, right, Pastor? Everyone should have passion. You should be passionate about something. You should be passionate about the things that you do. What's wrong with passion? But then you understand that this word means lust. Uncontrolled passions. Uncontrolled desires. This is when you lack self-control. When you can't say no to something. And as a, as a believer, as a Christian, we say, okay, we don't live that way anymore. Instead, we choose to live for God. And there's going to be times where you are going to be tempted to do things that you shouldn't do. Tempted to drink, tempted to do drugs, tempted to buy pornography, or whatever the case might be. And the uncontrollable desires and urges that drive you towards that bring division and get in the way of your relationship with God. So he said, don't have anything to do with that. Instead, put it to death. We are not to be controlled by our evil desires, our passions, our, our, their selfish desires, but rather be controlled by the Spirit of God. It mentions evil desires, which I think is pretty self-explanatory. Covetousness, which means greed. Selfishness here. Now, greed is something where we always want more and more. More money, more things, more pleasure, more of what other people have, or being envious of what other people have. This, when we see this, it means that we love these things more than we love God, our, God himself. And so as a result, it says, don't allow covetousness to enter in because it's idolatry. What's idolatry? It means the worship of things rather than God. The worship of desires rather than God. And so as we do away with those things, as we put them to death, we put God first. And he tells them to put these things to death. Why? Because God's judgment is coming to those who do such things. He says, you used to walk in these ways, past tense, but no longer. So we're to put those things to death. But the second thing is to uh, put off these things. Now, the other ones were like, okay, I get that. I shouldn't be an addict. I shouldn't be into to, to weird kind of perversion and stuff like that. That's not me. But then there are the things that we're to put off. These are the socially acceptable sins, if you will. These are the things where, like, it's okay if you do this, right? And so it talks about put off anger. Anger has to do with angry outbursts. Listen, anger is, is a natural reaction to things that upset you. What you do with anger is entirely different. 
You can be angry, but, you know, Ephesians 4, 26 says, in your anger, do not sin or let the sun go down in your anger. Boyfriends, girlfriends, husbands and wives, don't let the sun go down in your anger. I know that's a tough one. But, so don't let the sun go down in your anger, but rather, instead, choose not to give the enemy a foothold. So, we can be angry, but don't sin. We can be angry, but don't let it get the better of us. Malice. What's malice? Malice is planning to do harm to someone. In fact, this is kind of like murderous intent, if you will. So, if you have malice in your heart, you say, I'm going to get that person, and you're planning out the way to be able to get back at them or to hurt them or do them harm. Blasphemy. You're like, well, that's good. You know, I don't blaspheme, pastor. I, I I I don't speak ill of God. Okay, have you ever taken the Lord's name in vain? Have you ever used it as a swear word? Blasphemy also means speaking of evil things or speaking evil of God. Have there ever been times where you've kind of spoken evil things? You've spoken curses over something instead of blessings? You know, when those things happen, we are entering into evil speech. Coarse joking. Come on, Pastor, you can't possibly mean that coarse joking is a big deal. You can't possibly mean that, like, you know, just having a good laugh over something is is a problematic thing. Listen, I used to be a youth pastor for a number of years. I was a youth pastor for about 10 years. And, uh, my kids would watch different cartoons that they are, thought are funny, which, by the way, there's cartoons out there today that are not really geared for kids, but kids watch them anyway because parents think it's for kids. Don't let your six-year-old watch Family Guy, okay? I'm just going to tell you that right now, okay? They'll learn things they probably shouldn't learn. But people say, well, what's the problem? It's funny, and there's a lot of funny things that you shouldn't be involved in. Listen, watching somebody slip and fall on the pavement, their grocery goes everywhere in the middle of winter is hilarious, But you shouldn't laugh at that, okay? You shouldn't look at those things and say, okay. And you know what we do when we're nervous when someone falls down? We kind of laugh, but we shouldn't, right? There's things that happen that are not funny, and we shouldn't laugh at them. And so I'm amazed at times that we as Christians, we're very comfortable with certain speech. Comfortable with foul language. Comfortable with innuendos, comfortable with double entendres, saying things about things or or having jokes that kind of have like a dirty meaning to them. As Christians, we really need to examine ourselves and say, that's not part of me at all. I should have nothing to do with that. But yet, sometimes we are. Sometimes we do. And there are times where you've got to say, you know what? Catch yourself. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. Or later, you say, you know what? I said something I shouldn't have said. And there are things that come out when we're frustrated, things that come out when we're, you know, at ease or or very comfortable in the situation, and we need to be mindful of those things. Lying to each other. I think it goes without saying that we shouldn't do that because we who are Christians should live by truth and in truth. Some believers have become so accustomed to these things that it's no big deal to them. They're not bothered by them. They're not bothered by them, and then other people aren't bothered. And when those things happen, we have to go, you know what, I need to put those things off. Our conscience, character suffers when your conscience has become dull. I'll just say it again. Character suffers when your conscience becomes dull. In other words, when that little part of you that says, I shouldn't do that, and you no longer listen to that, that's when character comes into question. When you become dull to the Spirit of God and like the things that used to like really, you could feel that you grieve the Spirit of God 
where you feel like a sense of like, you know, remorse over that, and you don't feel that anymore, that means that whatever you used to do is now habit, and you don't even think twice. So our character suffers when our conscience becomes dull. What's the remedy? How do we fix that? We fix that through self-examination and Holy Spirit conviction. Self-examination and Holy Spirit conviction. I want you to think about this. Think about this. So much of our time in prayer and in the Word revolves around what we want. Think about this. What we're praying for. The encouragement we need. The things that we want from God and in God. How often are we actually examining ourselves and what we do? How often are we looking at our life and decisions? Praying for things is good. Trying to be, receive encouragement from the word is good, but there's an aspect of our times of prayer that we're neglecting. And that's self-reflection. How often are you thinking about your actions and reflecting on the things that you've done during the week that may have grieved the Holy Spirit or brought offense to God. When was the last time you thought about those things? Do they even come to mind? When they come to mind, are you asking God for forgiveness? David wrote in Psalm 139, 23, and 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. If we're not giving time for personal reflection before God, then we're approaching him with dirty hands and an unclean heart. So what does that look like? That means that when we sit down, we pray, and we say, God, I thank you for all that, you know, I can come to you this morning. I'm just thankful to spend time with you. I want to thank you for all the things you've done in my life. And then you sit, and, you know, there's a part where we confess our sins to him. Say, God, you know, I was kind of mean to my, one of my siblings. And I said something I shouldn't have said. I blew up at a coworker, and I shouldn't have done that. Or, you know, there are things that you looked at and things that you got involved in that were not pleasing to God. Some of the things that we mentioned earlier, are you sitting there and saying, okay, I need to make that right? Are you allowing just a little bit of space and reflection where you just sit and you think, what did I do this week? Is my heart right before God? And then focusing on those things and say, oh, yeah, I said something I shouldn't have said. I did something I shouldn't have did. Maybe even God leads you and says, you know what, you need to go and make it right with that person. Don't let the sun go down on this. Don't forget to go and make it right before you bring your gifts to the altar. Right? Didn't Jesus say that? But we've missed this. We've forgotten this time. And when that thing comes to mind, when God either reminds us or we remind ourselves, we go, God, I'm sorry. God, I can't believe I, I did that or I used to do that. Lord, forgive me for what I've done. I'm sorry for what I've done. Help me to do what's right in your sight. I promise you when you do that, you'll not only change, but you'll start to see God move things on your behalf to a greater degree. Why? Because now you are in tune with God's Spirit. Now you've removed anything that's in, that gets in between you and Him. If you've ever offended somebody, a friend, a family member, and then you try and pick up the phone and call them, how does that go? They go, uh, you know, or they'll play this game with you. It's like, uh, you did something wrong, but I'm not going to tell you. You should know. Right? And you can't figure out what you did wrong. When there's offense, we need to go back and review. And then when, the, when we 
ask that person for forgiveness, then the, the lines of communication are open again, aren't they? Then the relationship is restored. So if we understand that with family, with friends, with other people, why don't we understand with God? That when we sin, we bring offense before the Lord, and we need to confess that to him. Verses 9 and 10 talk about putting off the old man and putting on the new man. Putting off what is old and soiled and dirty and putting on something new. It's kind of like if you worked in the field all day or you worked in your shop all day when it was 90 degrees outside. Maybe you did landscaping and you were working out in the heat and the humidity and you go uh, come back from work and you're smelly and stinky. You know, what you do is you don't wear that around the house the rest of the day. As soon as you get home, what are you doing? You're taking that thing off, you're throwing it in the laundry, and you're taking a shower, right? Because I don't want to smell like that anymore. If you were in the gym and you worked out and your clothes got all sweaty, you wouldn't just go and sit around the house all day after you get back from the gym. Your wife or your spouse would probably tell you, hey, you need to go take a shower. You need to throw those things in the laundry. Why? Because you don't want to smell like what you used to be. Instead, you need to smell differently. You've got to look and act differently. Put on Christ-like character. Now, it's one thing to talk about taking things off, but what do you put on in its place? You've got to take off the old stuff. You need to put to death the old stuff, but you've got to replace it with something else. You can't go around without any clothes. Right? So as a Christian, he says, okay, well, if I'm taking out these things, I've got to put on something else. I've got to substitute one actions and behavior with something else. And so what are the instructions that he gives? He says, therefore, as the elect or chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. Do you see the word one another showing up in there? Okay. If anyone has a complaint against another, even forgive as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. So what are we to put on? We're to put on tender mercies. Tender mercies are compassion. When you look at someone else's suffering and hardship, and you say, I, my heart breaks for them. I want to do something about that. That's tender mercies. That's compassion. So we've put off selfishness, and we've put on care and concern for those that are less fortunate, for those that are hurting. Maybe it's the homeless. Maybe it's the battered women's home. Maybe it's the drug addict. Whatever the case might be, something rises up within you instead of going, that's not my problem. There's those are their bad decisions. Instead, something in you says, you know what? I, I'm concerned about that situation. Compassion is in your heart and your soul. Kindness. We're lacking kindness in the world today. Kindness is the action that follows compassion. Kindness is being friendly, being thoughtful, and being generous. Kindness is being befriending someone who doesn't have a friend. Kindness is doing something for someone that doesn't have anything else to give you. Kindness is doing something without expecting anything in return. You can have compassion, but if you don't have kindness, it's just a feeling of feeling bad. Humility. Humility is a humble attitude before God and others where you don't think of yourself as greater than everybody else. Instead, you're approachable, a listener, and willing to admit when you're wrong. Humility says, you know what? The, what other people say has value to me. Humility says, I'm not the greatest thing on this earth. Humility says, other people matter. Meekness, 
Another word for this is gentleness. This means that you don't assert dominance over others, but rather you show restraint, being gentle in the way that you deal with people. Maybe you know people who are like, they come into a situation and immediately they dominate. They come into a situation and immediately they take control. And sometimes that's belittling somebody else. Sometimes it's being forceful. And there are times where we as Christians, there are believers who are such a type D personality that when they go into a situation, they want to get things done and they'll steamroll people. But meekness says, instead of being dominant, instead of being pushy, instead of being overbearing, I choose to restrain the the power and the strength that I have by virtue of who I am into a situation. Instead, I, I say, okay, no. I will be gentle. I will be approachable. I will be kind. Long-suffering. This is not meaning you should suffer long, but rather being patient, showing self-restraint, putting up with a lot. Instead of being quick-tempered, showing reserve. And there are times where life frustrates you. There's times where other believers will frustrate you. But do you have patience that you put up with things and you suffer with them long? Forgiving each other. We need to forgive one another. Forgiveness is the very foundation of the gospel. It's at the core of what Jesus did for us. Jesus forgave us so that we should not refuse to forgive anyone. Jesus said, if we don't forgive others, then neither will God the Father forgive you. So forgiveness is not an optional thing. Forgiveness is not something we can say, well, I'll give or take. Forgiveness is a command that Jesus gave us. You say, well, pastor, if I forgive, they get away with it. No, that's not true. Forgiveness is not not saying it's okay. Forgiveness is not giving permission for the person to do it again. Forgiveness doesn't mean that the relationship goes back to what it was. Forgiveness means I've chosen to forgive you and move on. And trust and relationship needs to be worked on to be restored. Does that make sense? All right. Forgiveness is not trust. Forgiveness is not consent. Forgiveness is saying... I'm not going to be bound by what happened to me or what you did to me. I'm choosing to be different. We must forgive others as Christ forgave us. Over all these things is to put on love. Because if we do all these things just for our own glory, it's just noise. It's just self-appreciation. But if we do it in love, it's honoring God and it's blessing others. So Paul talked about concentration, think, focus your, things, your attention on things above. He talked about character, put off the old self, put to death the things that had to do with your sinful nature, with the, what kind of person you were before you became a Christian, and put on the new self, put on Christ-like qualities and character. And then finally, he talks about community. How many times does the word one another show up in these passages? One another. The church is where character is built. Community develops and builds character. Being together with other believers in the church develops accountability and character is formed. I'm going to call the worship team to join me as we get ready to close this service. But I want you to look at verses 15 through 17 of chapter 3. It says, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you are also called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, 
singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus and give thanks to God the Father through him. Take note of how many times the word one another appears in the scriptures. What does that mean? It means that it's really easy to think you're doing good when you're by yourself. Think about it. Hey, I'm doing good. I'm living for God. You know, I'm, I, I'm pretty okay until you add to the equation other people. It's like if God were making a soup and you were the only ingredient floating around in there, and then he says, okay, to make things interesting, I'm just going to add people. Just add people. Any one of us can live for God and to be able to get by without, like, getting upset or cursing or, or you know, telling somebody behind their back that you hate somebody or plotting things against them. We're all good at that as long as we're by ourselves. Listen, if you live in a tower alone, which some of you might say with your family, you might like, you know what, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> but if you lived in a tower by yourself, it's super easy to live for God because that's what the monks did. They would just take a vow of silence, a vow of poverty, a vow of abstinence, and they would go live away. And how hard is it to live in a castle somewhere where you have no external stimuli? Living out in the world is where it's tough. Living with people is where it's challenging. That's where we find ourselves tested. And that's why we need the church. There's things that you can't learn and grow on your own. It says to encourage one another. It says teach and warn one another and encourage each other with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. What does that sound like? Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That sounds like worship. Well, pastor, I can worship on my own. He said, but notice the one another's. Notice what, who else is included in that equation. Notice that we need to have other people with us. There is something about corporate worship. Uh, the Apostle Paul talked about it in the book of Hebrews 10, 25, and 26. Do not forsake the assembling of the brethren. Do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. So we're to, to build one another up in community. There's just some things you can't do on your own. If you are the own evaluator, it's like you grading your own paper after you took a test. Yep, nailed that one. That one's good. A, A+. Plus. But when you're around other people, that's when accountability happens. When you're with the believers in Christ in a Bible study and we're studying the truths of God's word, we bring out truth that may be at times upsetting, may be at times offensive to us, you know, but we are studying and learning. And there may be times that we as believers and brothers and sisters in Christ and someone says something off color and another person says, you know what, you shouldn't say that. Like, how dare you say that to me? How dare you say it? Think about it. We're holding ourselves accountable to one another. And we're saying, okay, listen, my focus is for, not for you to be like me. My focus is to help you be more like Christ. That we would be at peace with each other. So when we hold each other accountable, we're saying, you know what? I care about you enough to know that this is not the way you should live and the way you should act. You should choose to follow the Lord in this area. And it may not always be well received. We're to teach each other, learn from each other, grow one with another. We're to worship together. And when that happens, that's when in community, in being together, we grow into the character that we need to have. Sometimes we might think that we're doing pretty good. But then we get around others and we realize when someone pushes our buttons, when someone frustrates us, how do we react? 
How do we respond? What are we doing in those situations? And, and those things can be very telling. Character does matter. Jesus created the church for the purpose of building up his kingdom and building people into at the image of his son to be more Christ-like. But this morning, I wonder, and I want to ask you this question. Ask yourself this question. When was the last time that instead of praying for yourself, instead of digging in the word to find encouragement for yourself, when was the last time that you just had a moment where you were honest with God about where you're at? When was the last time that you did some self-reflection about the way that you live and the things that you do? When was the last time that you, challenged, you looked at the word and you, instead of going, I don't like that, and you closed it and you put it away, when was the last time that it really struck to the heart, struck a chord in your heart, and it really convicted you? And you said, okay, I, don't, I need to do, not do that anymore. God, help me not to do that. Or maybe reminding yourself of the things you did that week that you never asked God for forgiveness for, or you never asked that person for forgiveness for. And just saying, God, I'm just... I'm sorry. And including that as part of your daily prayer time with him. Because we want to be right before him. We want to walk in newness of life. We want to be a new creation in Christ. Not just something that somebody talks about, but something that we live and that we are. One of the biggest knocks against the church is that the church is full of hypocrites. And what is a hypocrite? Someone, it comes from a word about acting where one person pretends to be something, but they're really not. I was only acting. I was only playing the part. And so one of the accusations against a church, a church is full of hypocrites. What would happen if we ourselves, instead of pointing the finger at everybody else again, well, there's a hypocrite there, there's a hypocrite there. You know, look in the mirror that there's times where hypocrisy, all the things we talked about come out in our own life. And ask yourself, what is God dealing with you right now? We've gotten away from confessing things to one another. We've gotten away from talking to people about, you know, Pastor, I'm dealing and struggling with this. Would you pray for me? Can I challenge you today to ask yourself those questions? Say, you know, Lord, would you reveal anything in me that's not right and help me to follow you and help me to change? Thank you for listening. We invite you to join us Sunday mornings to worship with us. We are located at 267 College Highway in Southwick, Massachusetts. For more information about Living Hope Church, visit us online at www.livinghopechurchag.org.